1: To find out more about our fundraiser, visit findinggeniusfoundation.org and click on current initiatives. And now to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Dr. Stephen Ostoya, he's the director of the USDA California Climate Hub at the Agricultural Research Service and the John Muir Institute of the Environment. We're going to talk about uh, climate change and its effect on on species. So, Stephen, thank you for coming.
2: Oh, you're welcome. Nice to be with you. Rich.
1: So, tell me about your your work at USDA. What do you do?
2: Yeah, sure. So, I'm, a, I'm the director of the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Climate Hub. So, the Climate Hub program was established about six years ago, in the previous Bill Sack Secretary Bill Sack administration. We're effectively uh, the the Department's applied climate science program, and what that means is is we basically help. Resource managers, foresters, farmers, ranchers not only cope with the effects of, of climate change, extreme events, but also prepare for future events. So increased resilience, uh, make them a little more able to kind of withstand the, the, the pushing on the wall or the, or the um, stressors associated with uh, climate change and, and what we expect that to bring. But there's also a renewed interest in, in mitigation. That is both, you know, sequestration, pulling uh, greenhouse gases into uh, natural systems and, and also offsetting or avoiding emissions. So we work on both sides of that coin with our stakeholder base. Well, what's
1: happening with, with farmers and ranchers and things?
2: What are they observing? Well, I mean, it, it, it depends where you are, right? And so my the climate hub that I run is, is specifically California. California's got, you know, just shy of, of 40 million residents. We grow over you know 400 different commodities we've got really diverse forest and rangeland systems so depending on where you are and what you're talking about you know different things are showing up in different places i think one of the you know the biggest thing right now obviously is we've been in a we've been in a, a very significant drought for the last 2 years in, in fact we've been in drought conditions you know large by and large for the last 15 17 or so years most people don't realize, but, you know, most of California's water either comes as uh, comes as snowpack, which we're losing because the snow is moving higher up in elevation, or it comes from service rot- water runoff that's kind of moved into essentially, you know, really mass on a global scale. It's unmatched into conveyance systems and reservoir systems. And when you lose either, you know, the snow and you have less service water, you just don't have available water for all sorts of different applications. I think mean, that's one of the biggest issues is just drought, certainly. And right now we've got the development of La Niña, which you know, it's of course we you know, we can't predict the, the future with certainty, but generally speaking, when we have La Niña's building up, it generally suggests that we've got Did you say La Nina? So yeah, what's an well, El Niño
1: and what's La Niña? What's the difference?
2: The, the yeah, right. So the difference is when when those set up in the atmosphere, it oftentimes means for us in this part of the world and in, in, in the northern California portion of the world that we're going to see drought conditions in the coming winter months. So we'll see average to below average precipitation. And that and that kind of obviously be hugely significant, right? Because we won't have the snowpack. If that does hold true, we won't have the snowpack we need for restoring and building back some of the, the lost storage in our reservoir systems, and also soil moisture, and um, of course groundwater recharge. I think mean, that's one of the biggest issues. Of course, as you know, um, wildfires are a big deal out here, and they're you know they're not just in our forests and wildlands anymore. They're burning through communities. They're in what we call the wildland urban interface or the WUI. The direct effects of fire, I think, you know, kind of go without saying, but kind of indirectly, this is really compromised air quality. So it's got a, an enormous public health impact. We, we didn't see it so far this year too bad, but we saw it really bad last year and some years past where we had essentially, you know, wildland fire smoke hanging around in agricultural fields. So it really put the, the uh, wine grape growing industry there at risk because they have the smoke paint on the fruits around the berries. So that's, you know, a huge economic yeah. factor. You know, and, and I think the last thing I'll say is, is extreme heat, right? So we're seeing more and more just heat waves. That is where you have, you know, kind of some high temperature threshold above, you know, depending on where you are in the state, you know, some level over 100, 100 degrees for a sustained period of time. Right, and it just doesn't cool down and as you can imagine um you know just as if you were standing outside in the direct sunlight when it's 103 for three days straight it's gonna be pretty darn um, impactful and and we see that impact to a lot of the um a lot of the crop systems across california with that extreme heat.
1: yeah uh, so to start with water and drought what are the uh so you said snowpack melt is a source of water are there other sources being developed and if so what would they be
2: yeah, well, you know, so California has a long-standing history of groundwater pumping. We pumped a lot of groundwater. I don't have the figure right in front of me, but we pumped a lot of groundwater during the 2012-2016 drought that was the worst drought in, based on oak tree ring records in 1,200 years. So we do have kind of that backup saving account in groundwater, but we've been, we've been depleting groundwater resources. It's such a fast tick. Over the years, um, that the recharge just hasn't kept up or hasn't been able to restore that. Right. So um, we do have new regulation in place called the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act, which will be kind of a phased-in regulation on a local scale of groundwater use. But you know, I think there, there we don't really have much investment right now in new um, surface water infrastructure. Right. So the, the, the dams and the conveyance systems that we have in place now that have been in place for decades are basically what we have. So it, it does put us a little bit in a, a tricky spot looking forward in terms of water.
1: Well, yeah, groundwater, I would think, would run out. What about desalination? Is that still yeah, incredibly I, expensive or how difficult? Yeah, I, I
2: don't I don't know that much about it, to be honest with you, Rich. There are desalination operations. I think the cost of it, the energy demand of it, as well as some of the environmental concerns offshore have been kind of fraught with some challenges in the legal system. But yeah, I I don't know too much about that. And I I don't know that I couldn't speak to the scale at which we would have to apply desal um, statewide or even western wide to kind of offset some of the predicted changes in, in surface water availability in the coming years.
1: So what, what are the, some of the proposed solutions for water specifically, and then, you know, we can move on to fire and everything?
2: Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, to, one is, is to getting a better understanding of how, how to keep water in the system longer, right? So what does a, a, a forest structure need to look like in terms of the distribution and arrangement of, of trees so that it captures snow and it keeps more snow on the on the landscape for a longer period of time and then to have a better prediction around runoff so that we know what we need to let out of reservoirs at the right time to accommodate the incoming right so it's essentially it's essentially a refinement of all of the um, pinch points along that continuum from upper headwaters in our mountain systems all the way to our floodplains or our agricultural fields. Um, there's a lot of great work in California working on water use efficiencies through micro sprinklers, through fertigation, through um, subsurface irrigation, as well as through identification of, of different crops and varieties that are more efficient for water use, too. So I think there's a, there's a lot of opportunities that um, through technology and better modeling. It's going to kind of put a finer point on essentially the, the ins and the outs or the use of of water in the years to come.
1: Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700-plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives in our world. Even though this podcast gets a 100,000-plus downloads a month, How would you change a piece of land where there's crops growing to make sure water stayed there longer? Do you put up enough barriers or do you plant other plants that you know act like plant like camels that suck up water and keep it as a reservoir? Yeah, what no. Best
2: yeah no that that's a good question. There are some practices in particular there's one called cover cropping, or I guess there's a couple I can mention one is cover cropping, and that's and, you, and folks that are familiar with kind of driving through agricultural fields or plantations might see this, but if you, you can just imagine a, you know, a, a, orchard, a orchard of trees and they're evenly spaced in rows. And oftentimes between those rows, you don't see anything on the, on the floor, on the orchard floor. But what we're seeing more and more is the adoption of cover cropping. And that's the intentional planting of different you know, grasses and forbs that uh, cover that bare surface. And by doing that, they're increasing the soil organic carbon, and that allows for a greater amount of soil water staying in the system for longer periods of time, right? So there are some challenges with cover cropping, of course, right? But it, it does hold a lot of promise, I think, in becoming more drought resilient for agricultural operations, There is an additional practice that um, is being explored pretty broadly in California, and that's the application of composting. So putting clean, high-grade quality compost over wild lands, and particularly rangelands, which are generally dominated by, by grasses, annual grasses and some forbs mixed in. And the idea there is to essentially distribute that compost over the land surface and it facilitates, in, again, an increase in soil organic carbon and has been demonstrated in some cases to really increase the amount of water holding capacity over these systems, which, just like I mentioned in the agricultural systems with cover crops, adds the same value. So it adds a greater drought resilience, if you go
1: You said that California produces like 400 different, you know, items and and all kinds of stuff. Is anyone out there looking at the 400 different crops, the economic impact of each, and then saying, all right, we have a Pareto, like an 80-20, these crops have the most problems, or if we lost these and we switched more to producing this, you know, we would reduce water use or, you know, is there anyone looking at the 400 things produced as like a portfolio of California's revenue and kind of managing it in that sense, like weighing the environmental concerns versus the monetary concerns.
0: If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes.
2: Yeah, I mean, that, I mean that is being done, but as you can imagine, there's there's so much more to that, right? Because you have to. There are different crop varieties. There are different on-farm operational practices, and all of those different decisions, operational decisions. Really change that equation in the end. Um, it has been done in you know case by case basis. I'm not aware of a of a statewide study that is kind of you know essentially kept all things equal and said oh if you you know if you had more almonds of this variety or more wine grapes of that variety or you know less peaches here and more cherries there kind of thing. Um, I'm not aware of that. It is a You know, obviously, it's a a balance, right? Because you're really talking about the water, energy, food security, economic nexus. And there is a tension at that, but um, it's it's difficult in a place like California, where you have such a high degree of variability. You have so many different microclimates and soil types and all of these things, you know, interact in ways that kind of make it all really context or location or situation specific. And it becomes more difficult to generalize across a place so so big and diverse like California.
1: Right. But farmers are growing all these things yet anyway. They've found their niche. They found what's working and they're doing it for profit. But um, do you think it'll be useful to do a study like that, to look at everything and see the top producers and you know their water use and maybe switch things around? And would that help conservation?
2: Well, I do, but, you know, I think at the, the end of the day, too, you, we have to remember that, that these farmers have wa- different levels of water rights. So they have access to, you know, differing access to the, the resource that may not be the same as their neighbor or two neighbors down. But I, I do think, you know, looking at the whole system approach, as I mentioned earlier, looking at the headwaters and the surface water and the inflow to our reservoirs, and making more efficient the the outflow of those reservoirs and the conveyance of those waters to kind of maximize their efficiency for the for agricultural application is definitely something that you know my agency and I, I am not one of those scientists doing that per se, but that that we are looking at. I think at the same time, you know, one of the things we can't overlook is the potential for groundwater recharge. Right? Is, is essentially how do we get that water back into our below ground deep aquifers um, when we have these opportunities of what we term atmospheric rivers, right? Where we have these like multi day or, or, you know, kind of a large part of some day just deluges of, of heavy precipitation, we kind of get mass localized flooding. We want to also be able to take advantage of that, right? So it's not just all lost to runoff, but we can. We can help recharge that system when we do have drought conditions into the future. We will have restored some of that groundwater as a resource that we can rely on, just like a savings account when um, when times are more challenging.
1: Well, how does groundwater get replenished? And I don't think you would pump it back in there for any reason. But is it the rain that's percolating down through the soil that makes it to the aquifer that recharges it, or yeah, or yeah, is it, it that? It, you know, if Sorry. it rains, you just never put it in the ground, but you keep it in storage ponds, and it's it's as if it's just another resource of of water in addition mm-hmm. to the groundwater.
2: Right. Well, well, it both. Right. We want to we want to maximize the efficiency of our above ground reservoirs, as I mentioned. Right. But groundwater recharge. Yes, you can pump the water back into the aquifers, but you can also identify locations where you have the right soil permeability. The ability that is for the, the, the water to penetrate down into, down back into the aquifers as well. And there are different practices and technologies that are kind of looking at that efficiencies, right? We're part of a project that was just recently funded by the National Institute of Food and Agriculture um, It hasn't even essentially started yet, but we will be investigating different technologies, even using remote sensing and different imagery to identify locations that hold promise for groundwater recharge at a a kind of a mass scale. So, like I said, we would be able to take advantage of those heavy rainfall events and, and funnel the water essentially to the right place at the right time, such that you can really maximize the potential to get that water back into the aquifer.
1: And then in regards to fire, why no. is there more uh I had heard that clearing of the underbrush on various lands is very important, and maybe selective burning to prevent you know large wildfires but what's um what's involved in fire management what's important
2: yeah well again, I think that question is is a tough one to answer because there it really depends on where you are right I think most of the attention or a lot of the attention has been on our forested systems. Um, as you know, we've had a the United States has had a long-term policy of of fire suppression. We've been rethinking that in the last several decades, since the 80s, actually, but with you know a century plus of essentially the elimination or the, the mass reduction of fire use and fire application, we've seen our forest change, right? So we historically had a more patchily distributed kind of forest structure and composition where we had, you know, fewer but larger trees that were not necessarily evenly spaced in across the forested landscape. Um, That's what we see today as a function of of fire suppression and that, you know, when that's been kind of exaggerated, if you will, or the the susceptibility to mass fires has been exaggerated by some of the effects of, of climate change. So you have a fuels accumulation situation as a function of, of past management decisions that you know I don't think were ill intended. We just didn't have all of the best available information that we have now. And now you've got, you know, some climatic factors that are stressing trees and accumulating or and contributing to the susceptibility of these fires. So what we need to do is use all of the available tools that we have in the toolbox. And those include the use of fire, fire you know, we have to remember these, these, these forested systems evolved with low intensity, low moderate intensity fire for millennia, just like they evolved with drought. And, you, you know, when you take something out of a system like fire and expect it to just behave as it would, um, that's just not the case. So we definitely need to be putting fire back onto the landscape. You know, the application of prescribed fire safe safe and, and doable using prescribed managed fire to do some of that work. But I think there are also opportunities where we can increase the pace and scale of mechanical treatments, like you said, where we can we can reduce the surface fuels and reduce some of the the canopy closure situations where we don't have such a dense canopy and, and reduce the ability for fire to spread really rapidly in severe weather conditions what
1: What areas are the most susceptible to fire? and if there was fire, you know I guess it would destroy homes, but are there are there certain fire spots that again, it's a heavy concentration of homes and other ones where it's like let's say, a heavy concentration of fields with crops, or does the right. do the fires not tend to endanger the growing of crops, just more people's homes?
2: Yeah. No. I mean, the, the fire, fire, and what I was terming the wildland urban interface is a is a real concern in California. We we are looking at locations across California that uh, appear to be a higher appear to be more prone to negative fire effects or or catastrophic fire effects. But we have to remember. The majority of our fires in California are not started by the the fire, the the forests or the wildlands themselves, right? A lot of these fires are starting by infrastructure malfunction, whether that's power lines or other equipment use at the wrong time at the wrong place, and in some cases, intentional setting, right? We have, you know, illegal campfires in some cases, we have arson in other cases, and I think that's, you know, that's part of the the conversation that is often overlooked is if the, you know, it's if we just have better this, you know, we often hear this term better forest management, but we kind of forget about the part of the conversation that says, says, hey, well, look, we've got more people living in our rural areas now than we ever had before. We have a higher likelihood of, of accidental ignitions through whether those are based on power infrastructure or based on equipment use, like I said, at at a not the best time or, you know, in some unfortunate cases, illegal activity of of fire ignitions. I think that's some of some of what we need to look at, too.
1: What other issues um, are important for California? So we have water, we have fire. What are some of the other top resources that it's very important to look at?
2: Well, I I think um, you know one of the things that we, we want to make sure that we're paying attention to and and definitely getting more awareness to is our the the priorities of our what we call our disadvantaged communities across California, right? We have in some cases some of the poorest air quality in the United States in our Southern San Joaquin Valley. I think you know with greater aridity and, and, and drying periods. That increases them to, that facilitates an increase in in poor air quality and things like valley fever. I think some of the kind of the socio ecological impacts of climate change are are really, really important for us in California. And and I think there's a lot of room for advancing our work in in those areas as well so that we can serve the interests of all Californians and um, make for a more equitable future.
1: Well, very good. For people interested, where can they go to learn more about what USDA is doing and you know all the various environmental efforts?
2: Yeah, no, that's great. And I'll, I'll share too that the, the U.S. Department of Agriculture just released a, an adaptation plan that you can find on the USDA webpage. And if you're interested to learn more about the USDA climate hubs, you can simply Google USDA climate hubs and our webpage will pop right up there are ten climate hubs across the nation. Um, California is unique; it's 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 the only regional hub that is also a state. But you can find on the the top of that webpage, you, wherever you happen to live in the the country, you can find your local climate hub and and locate the the staff there and, and feel free to reach out; they'd be happy to assist you. Okay, very good. Well, Steve, thank you for coming on the podcast,
1: and it's been uh, very interesting. I appreciate it. You bet, Rich. Have a good afternoon. Thank you.